0: Suppose a rainforest was crowded with robots, but not just robots, intelligent robots that are perfectly adapted to the living circumstances of the rainforest. How? We don't even know what living in a rainforest is like. Well, This might become possible through artificial evolution. Um, By artificial evolution, robots can reproduce and create robots that are better suited to the living circumstances in the rainforest. And these, re- uh, these robots can then maybe help in uh, the deforestation. So they might prevent uh, the fact that people illegally um, cut trees. Well, this might sound crazy, but this might actually become possible by the research of Professor Gusti Eiben, um, Professor of Computational um, Intelligence at the Free University in Amsterdam. Gusti, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, um, yeah, you're doing research about, in, uh, about evolutionary robotics. Uh, well, what is this actually?
1: Well, uh, evolutionary robotics is a particular approach to design and perhaps later even produce robots that are well suited for certain environments and tasks for which classic engineering uh, cannot design and produce those robots. The main idea is very simple, uh, considering that evolution, natural evolution, that is, has successfully populated all environmental niches niches on Earth. It is very plausible to assume that artificial evolution could also create uh, organisms, artificial organisms, robots, for all kinds of environments and tasks that we give them. So the idea is quite simple and appealing. The hard part is making it work. And making it work means that we have to uh, convert the evolutionary principles that Tor- Darwin uh, not invented but discovered uh, into an artificial medium. Mm-hmm. There is a scientific discipline which is called evolutionary computing and that is already 40 years old. and It is a very prosperous, well working discipline. So we know how to go from wetware to software, which is when we transition from biological evolution to digital evolution.
0: How did you call it? Vetware? Vetware. What's that?
1: That's a term in nerdland to Mm -hmm. describe life on Earth. Okay. Okay. So we are used to software (laughs) and we Uh are used to hardware. And then we can also call life on Earth wetware. Okay. (laughs) So the discipline of evolutionary computing could be described as the one that goes from wetware to software. And evolutionary robotics amounts to the next great transition from software to hardware. Yes,
0: yeah, so from uh, like a, a code into a robot, like a physical robot.
1: Yes, exactly. And so the thing that we convert, the, the, those principles, those Darwinian or evolutionary principles, that we can implement in computer simulations and that we are trying to implement in in physically incarnated objects are selection and reproduction. So there is nothing more to it. If you ask a biologist, what is evolution? What do you need for evolution? She would say you would need selection and reproduction uh, in such a way that you also have inheritance, meaning that the new individuals, the children or the offspring, uh, inherit properties of the parents with some variation. And if we could do this in an artificial medium, a physically incarnated object, uh, then we could have the evolution of, of things.
0: Yeah, I think everyone is uh, has heard of evolution. Uh, maybe it's good to shortly uh, repeat like what is re- Evolution, and then we can explain um, with uh, the natural evolution how Mm -hmm. the robot evolution will work.
1: Okay, so evolution, in my simplified view, uh, being a mathematician, talking about evolution is not really my uh, area. But what I learned over the years is um, evolution works by a repeated cycle of selection and reproduction. Reproduction is when one individual, it could be uh, a a bacterium, it could be a rabbit, it could be uh, an ape, or a a human, Mm -hmm. um, reproduces, meaning creates uh, an offspring. And we know asexual reproduction, which only requires one parent, Bacteria use this mechanism. And we have sexual reproduction that requires two parents, like you know rabbits and humans uh, reproduce uh, uh, sexually. The, the, the key of reproduction is that you start with one individual and you end with two, or you start with two individuals and you end with three or more, depending on how many children that creates. And these children... Uh, resemble the parents a little bit, but not quite. Especially with sexual reproduction, you always get a recombination. So a little bit of the father and a little bit of the mother. So that's one thing. And the other half, the other um, fundamental power that you need uh, for an evolutionary dynamics is selection. The selection is very well known by the catchphrase of survival of the fittest. Mm And that stands for the phenomenon that the fittest individuals, meaning the best adapted individuals, survive long enough to reach the age of fertility and be able to uh, create offspring. There is another selection which is less known, or at least doesn't have such a well-known catchphrase, that is the mating of the fittest. It is always the best individuals that can mate. Giving a very popular example, okay. To have children uh, in the world of humans, you need to be rich and famous and beautiful and intelligent and all of the above. Otherwise, you will fail in uh, in your quest for a suitable mating partner. So, the selection of the fittest, uh, sorry, so the survival of the fittest and the mating of the fittest are the two kinds of selection, and if you combine reproduction with selection, then you get a process which always pushes quality by only allowing the better individuals to survive and reproduce. In the meanwhile, it also pushes diversity and, and novelty by mutating existing individuals or recombining individuals into new combinations. So there is a continuous process of innovating and then selecting, creating new stuff and then throwing away old stuff. And if you do this long enough, for a couple of billion years, then you can go from dead matter to living matter and then up to you know, the world we know on, on Earth. It is the Homo sapiens that we consider to be the top of evolution.
0: let's go to your expertise then from uh, the biology to your expertise um, so we saw the two essential ingredients are reproduction and survival of the fittest selection um, so yeah selection yes yeah, selection is in selection the form of for example survival of the fittest um, how do you implement this in the robots
1: that is the big question indeed and the easy let me start with the easy part the easy part is selection because typically not always but very often we want robots that do something useful which means that we want the robots to perform some task and task performance can be observed and also measured and task performance can be used as the basis of selection we could define task performance being the fitness measure and then a robot which performs that task or those tasks which we want the robots to perform will get a high fitness value and therefore it will be able to survive and reproduce.
0: Yeah, so for an example, could be that uh, preventing deforestation. Yes. in the beginning that
1: that could be an application indeed or you could you know think of robots uh, that live and work within quotes uh, in deep seas on on, on on the sea floor and then explore the sea floor and, and gain some raw materials and then popularly speaking bring up the gold okay um, and then the amount of gold that the robot brings up, uh, it's the fitness value. And then if it's a uh, high fitness value, then we allow the robot to have many children because we want to have children of those robots that work well. So this is the selection part, which can be easy if the robots have a task to perform. This need not be the case, by the way, we could have an evolutionary process where robots don't need to do anything specific, only need to survive and reproduce, so closer to life than, <coughs> than, than technology. And then selection could be based on uh, being fit for the environment. So a robot that has the right sensors and the right actuators, the wheels and the arms and the whatnot. Um, to move around and find energy and approach other robots for reproduction that will have many children. And robots that don't have the right sensors and actuators and the right to uh, to use those sensors and actuators, they will just be not good enough and they will disappear.
0: But how? Because uh, in real life uh, a person or an animal actually would then just die if it doesn't have the right eyes or... But how does it work for the robot like it doesn't die if it ha- doesn't have the right features?
1: Uh, in our current thinking robots will need energy, so they will have to replenish their energy somehow. And the easiest cases that everybody is working with at the moment obviously robots have a battery that needs to be recharged, recharged regularly. So um, a fit robot uh, is able to recharge its battery before it runs empty. And if a robot does not have the ability, it will maybe not die, but just, you know, drop dead and, and then stop stop acting. And, yes, yeah, so that would be a kind of robot, robot death. It doesn't do anymore because the battery is empty. Or other kinds of uh, being unsuited is if it... Does not have the right sensors and it falls into a ditch, yeah. or and it, it bumps into a rock, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it gets jammed in, uh, in some bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of ways for the robots to uh, to stop working.
0: Mm-hmm. So yes. This okay. was the
1: first. This was the yeah. easy part, the yeah. selection part. Yes. Now the hard part is reproduction. Because reproduction would require, and I'm using a popular phrase again, that robots can't have children. That's really a big thing. So everybody sees that using tasks as a fitness measure, it's easy to do the selection part. But for the reproduction part, we need need robots that have children, that reproduce, and then Why not follow the first idea of the whole thing and look at nature? The whole idea of evolving robots comes from looking at nature. So we could look at nature again and ask ourselves, how do natural organisms reproduce? And then you see there are several mechanisms. For instance, cell division. That's perhaps the first mechanism. But robots self-dividing doesn't seem to be very likely, at least with the current technology. Then... You could see uh, animals higher up the evolutionary ladder that lay eggs. So they they produce something small which grows to a full-grown animal, a chicken or whatever, a dinosaur. That could be done perhaps, but that's also not that easy. And then we have the mammals like ourselves that, that get pregnant and then, you know, they... They, they grow the offspring inside their own bodies. And that's also something which is really hard. And therefore, um, when I and my collaborators started to, to, to contemplate about how could we do this, we had an idea which is, in hindsight, very simple. Why don't we use 3D printers as, as, as the artificial womb? And then if the 3D printing technology were already advanced enough, then we could send the specification sheet of a robot and then after some zooming and, <laughs> and uh, using some time and energy and raw materials, uh, these three resources, the 3D they could produce a robot that, that materializes those specifications. So that could be the birth process. So this is more feasible technically. And it has a very big ethical, safety-related advantage. So when we came, after after we came up with this idea, it sounded a little bit as you know uh, uh, a necessary evil, because we cannot do it any other way or at this moment uh, at the current, current level of technology. Until we realized that this is actually. A very good technology because exactly because it does not follow uh, natural reproduction mechanisms and the way I see natural reproduction mechanisms they are distributed meaning that they can happen anywhere and everywhere you know a bacterium can you know divide itself wherever it is in, in a human body or on the leaf of a tree and um, uh, a crocodile uh, or a chicken can lay eggs, you know, whenever and wherever it pleases. And also mammals could get pregnant and and um, and have the offspring, uh, give birth, uh, deliver the offspring without any control. So if we have a population of robots, of I don't say that, I don't know, like thousand robots or a million robots, all of them could could have children, and that may not be the thing we want because, yeah, we won't have any control mm-hmm. of that process. And we may want to have some, some form of control, human control. And from the perspective of human control, using 3D printers as the womb is really good, because this means that we have a centralized, externalized reproduction mechanism. It's not in a robot. So we could have a million robots out there, but for reproduction, they have to be home or sent the DNA to a central infrastructure, a unique facility, the 3D printer or the the factory, that can make new robots. And in hindsight, this is not a weak point of our design, it is a very strong point of our design, because this means that we can have control of the whole system. Uh, um, Putting it differently, this can prevent runaway evolution.
0: W- what evolution? Run
1: away. R- run away.
0: Ah, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah.
1: using a centralized, externalized yeah. reproduction mechanism with some, some human-controlled infrastructure can prevent runaway evolution, yeah. meaning that we can always stop the 3D printer and then freeze evolution, because if there are no uh, offspring, then there is no evolution anymore. Yeah. yeah, it
0: sounds scary. Like, we don't know what we're building and because it's its own p- autonomous process, so indeed it sounds good that we uh, can stop it whenever we, we want and it doesn't go on just autonom- autonomously.
1: Yes, yeah. it is. And, you know, I'm quite enthusiastic about mm-hmm. the idea. and uh, My colleagues and uh, a couple of uh, research labs all over the uh, globe I enthusiast are enthusiastic and working on it. But in the meanwhile, I think that a responsible scientist always mm-hmm. should consider the consequences, the long-term yeah. consequences of his or her work, and even the negative consequences, especially the negative consequences, yeah. and start to prevent those negative consequences. So, yeah. And this, uh, this uh, choice of using a centralized reproduction facility fulfills that wish, because this really means that we do this by design not only forced by necessity, even though it was how it started, mm-hmm. but now, by now it is a deliberate choice and we do not want any other mechanism. Yeah. Every now and then I have a, a bright student mm-hmm. or a PhD student or I talk to someone on a conference and I hear this idea, why don't we do this and this, you know, self-aggregating material, and, and I say, no, I definitely do not want that because that would be distributed reproduction that you cannot control.
0: Yeah i see yeah and going back to the to reproduction um humans and animals have dna and then the the child is a combination of the dna um, with mutations possibly how does it work for the robots they have uh, i don't know how you say it, code or algorithm uh how do they combine them Uh, how does it work
1: (laughs) It's, it's the same as in, in living organisms in the sense that the, the fundamental design decision that we take from life is that every organism has two levels of existence, a genotype and a phenotype. This is what I learned from the biologist. Mm-hmm. The genotype is the DNA mm-hmm. and every living being starts its life as being a piece of DNA. And just let's go see the mammals because it is easier mm-hmm. uh, to think of them, okay? So a small rabbit or a dog or even a human being starts as a zygote, which is a fertilized egg. And that is hardly anything more than uh, the DNA of the father and the DNA of the mother combined in a certain way in a new piece of DNA. So that is what we call the genotype. And then we have the phenotypes, which is, you know, the the physical occurrence of that animal or a human being. Uh, Whether it has a thick fur or not, or blonde uh, hair, or blue eyes, or all these features, but also including perhaps uh, the emotional attitude or uh, relation to aggressivity, so lots Mm -hmm. of features. We do exactly the same for robots, the DNA is the specification sheet, and the robot uh, is the, the incarnation of that specification. So that the specification is the genotype and the robot is the phenotype. And the great advantage of this system, this, this bi-level existence of robots, is that we can easily do the mutation and the crossover in the computer because it only means manipulating the code of the DNA. So the robotic DNA is a piece of code, it's Mm -hmm. just digital. So we can do everything that evolutionary computing is already doing for 40 years. Mm -hmm. We have an awful lot of different uh, types of genotypes, they call it uh, genetic representation, and we have suitable mutation operators and crossover operators for all of these different data types. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everything which is already there in evolution computing, we can do. And we can do the genotypic part of recombination and reproduction. We can mutate DNA and we can recombine DNA.
0: And you do it manually or is no, it an automatic process? It
1: is a randomized algorithmic mm-hmm. process. Okay. So what we do in digital evolution is... Uh, what a mutation operator does it's a it's a program it's a piece of computer code it takes one DNA as an input and produces another DNA as an output or one genotype as an input and produces another genotype as an output for robots it takes Mm -hmm. one specification sheet and produces another specification sheet which is somehow changed And if we have sexual reproduction, then we use a crossover operator, which is again just a program. It needs two genotypes as input and it will produce one or more genotypes as output. So that's the first half of reproduction. On genotypic level, we can mutate and recombine. And now comes the big, really hard part, how to express a genotype into a phenotype. You know, in human beings it takes nine months, eh? we know that, okay. Uh, For robots, we have the 3D printer, and typically at this moment also more. uh, We have prefabricated components like cameras and wheels, Mm -hmm. which are not 3D printable. And then we also need a human being or uh, a very uh, sophisticated robot arm that can assemble those parts into a new robot.
0: Yeah. Okay, and then uh, suppose we have the, the baby... Or the robot baby, I mean. Yes. Then um, I think, yeah, because you can say the f- the phenotype actually uh, continues to develop. Also, with humans, you can change over time um, how you look. Although maybe that's not really uh, consequence of the evolution, because like one individual cannot uh, undergo evolution. Um, but still, like, how does it uh, how does it work for the robot once it's once it's born?
1: Uh So okay yeah, uh, robots a uh, robot baby starts its life pretty much like uh, an, a, a little animal or a little human and that is learning. And the first things that uh, animals and humans learn is coordinating uh, the, the sensory motory coordination. This is why little babies are playing with their hands in front of their eyes. Or A little giraffe is, is, mm-hmm. stands up and 20 minutes long it is just, you know, waggling and after 20 minutes it can coordinate its, its limbs and it can mm-hmm. follow the mother. So pretty much the same for robots. Um, they have to undergo a learning process which is part of our overall system architecture. So, uh, and in that learning stage of a robotic life, by definition the robot is not fertile. So it cannot uh, participate in an act of mating because we don't know yet how good it is, actually. Mm -hmm. So this is, again, a design decision, which is very natural, of course. eh? For humans, it takes Mm -hmm. like 15 years or whatever uh, to become fertile. And we are learning even after that. So a robot baby starts learning, coordinate its uh, sensors and actuators, uh, learn how to walk, learn how to touch something, learn how to stick its nose into the charging station to gain some <laughs> energy uh, that kind of things and this learning period is finished by a test or examination and this is designed by the user or you know, the, the, the experimenter and if a robot baby or a robot child passes this examination successfully then we postulate that it is fertile from that moment on it is a grown up it can be released from the robot school or the nursery or the training center, whatever you call it, and released into the environment where it really has to prove itself and uh, do the task that he wanted to do and find mates, uh, reproduce, and live happily ever after.
0: Yes. Okay. And. Um Uh, The first uh, robot baby was born uh, in 2016, I believe. Yes, indeed, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Um, So that's now uh, four years ago. (laughs) What would you say uh, has changed or what other things have you developed uh, since then?
1: Okay, so what happened since 2016, the birth of the first robot baby in Amsterdam?
0: It was all over the news. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: it was a really, very uh, exciting period. Actually, in hindsight, I, and we really already used a little bit uh, because technically speaking, it is really an offspring. So we started that, that proof of concept experiment with two robots and we ended with three robots. Mm-hmm. And by all means, it is, uh, the third robot is arguably the offspring of the first two. So that is indeed the first robot baby on Earth. In the meanwhile, that sounds overly popular, so we were a little bit uncertain, like, can we really do this? I mean, won't we lose our reputation as serious scientists? And actually, we didn't. So, uh, of course, the media were very, very interested. So we were on on news channels, and ever since, uh, from other countries, Germany, France, Italy, Hungary, uh, you know, TV crews are coming and making uh, uh, items on the robot baby. In the meanwhile, uh, serious scientists, people I really deeply respect, whose papers I always read, they congratulated us, saying, yes, this is a technical scientific milestone, and in the meanwhile, a very nice outreach, explaining something to the general public and arguing what we do with your public money. And not... uh, in the last class and also it paved the way uh, for f- getting funding mm-hmm. one of my great frustrations was that uh, i have developed this idea from the early 2010 so 2010 my ted talk was in 2011 where i outlined already the grand vision And then I started to write proposals together with colleagues from other countries in Europe, uh, so-called European Research Project proposal. And we always were rejected uh, with lots of arguments. The one which always came back in all these rejections was, this is not science, this is science fiction. It cannot be done. It is too hard. And this robot baby project delivered a proof of concept, proof of principle. It can be done (laughs) and we know how to do it. Just give us the money.
0: Yeah, wow, that's even nicer than that you succeed if they said like, no, this is science fiction, it's not possible, but you prove it's actually possible.
1: Yes, it makes me think of of, some graffiti I saw somewhere. uh, Is uh, Everybody thought it was impossible until someone did it.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's with a lot of things in science (laughs) or maybe everything. I was wondering, actually, uh, is this... So you mentioned uh, evolutionary computing. I think it exists already for a longer time. But this idea of uh, implementing it physically, is it your idea?
1: Not really. Uh, the, the term evolutionary robotics is already more than 20 years old. So the seminal book, which is called Evolutionary Robotics, uh, was published in 2000 by uh, Stefano Norfi and Dario Floriano. So the concept that evolution can be employed to design good robots is definitely not mine. But uh, forced by technological limitations, this concept never left the realm of uh, virtual worlds. Mm-hmm. It was all closed in, 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 in the virtual digital world inside the computer. And if it came out, there are a couple of very interesting papers, but two or three maximum, over 20 years, then the evolutionary process was conducted in a computer simulation. And at the end, this led to a couple of well-designed, interesting robots. And some of those were produced, constructed physically in the real world. So evolution was always digital and only one or two robots were produced physically. So the idea that was mine, or maybe uh, not mine, but I was the one who first really seriously scientifically considered the idea of liberating evolution and getting it out of the computer and implementing it in the real world, in, in uh, physical in physical objects. And this is, was also popularized by a nice catchphrase, so this is uh, when I introduced the term of evolution of things so one of my my papers which is very well cited in a very um, high quality journal is called from evolutionary computation to the evolution of things and this designates the grand vision of going liberating evolution, going from digital to physical from software to hardware so that concept maybe Uh, Maybe it was mine, but it was in the air somehow. Yeah,
0: so the concept was in the air, but you uh, together with, uh, I guess, the research group were the first to actually implement it. Yes, and and
1: also we were the first uh, who really seriously outlined what Mm -hmm. it would mean, Mm -hmm. what kind of uh, conditions would hold. So that paper uh, that I'm thinking of at the moment is from 2012. And that outlined already the, the grand vision, the concepts, also the, the grand challenges, uh, and they are still valid. So in 2012, a couple of two two quarters and myself saw it already coming and we saw quite well what needed to be done and to, 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 confer, to, and to convert a vague idea into a research program, that's exactly what you need, Mm -hmm. a a vision paper or a a position paper, it's called. And it was indeed uh, me and my colleagues who wrote this vision paper, who outlined the research program that will lead to robots that can evolve in real time and real space.
2: Às vezes o coração Não consegue compreender O que a mente não faz questão Nem tem forças pra obedecer Quantos sonhos já destruí E deixei escapar das mãos Se o futuro assim permitir Não pretendo viver em vão Meu amor, não estamos sós Tem um mundo a esperar por nós No infinito do céu azul Pode ter vida em Marte Então vem cá, me dá a sua língua Então vem, quero abraçar você Seu poder vem do sol Minha medida, meu bem, vamos viver a vida. Então vem, senão eu vou perder quem sou. Vou querer me mudar para uma life amada. o coração não consegue compreender o que a mente não faz questão nem tem forças para obedecer quantos sonhos já destruí e deixei escapar das mãos seu futuro assim permitir não pretendo viver em vão Meu amor, não estamos sós. Tem um mundo a esperar por nós. O infinito do céu azul pode ter vida em Marte. Então vem e dá a sua língua. Então vem que eu quero abraçar você. Seu poder vem do sol, minha medida. Meu bem, vamos viver a vida. Então vem, senão eu vou perder quem sou. Vou querer me mudar para uma life amar.
0: So we also thought that you, you were the first to uh, make the, the evolution physical. Um, so I can imagine that from then on, you can really start with real applications. If it's outside the computer, we can maybe use it in, well, the rainforest we mentioned earlier. Um, are you currently working on specific projects or are there already um, real places where robots, evolutionary robots are used?
1: yes yes and yes all all, 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 all of the above yes (laughs) great (laughs) um of course i have always um, mentioned applications uh, if for nothing else because uh, uh, if you want research money you have to tell and argue that it is good for something so you need an application and the typical applications are space research for instance uh, the colonization of Mars or terraforming of a planet which is not inhabitable at the moment so make terraforming means making it more like Earth so that we can live on it or another application is um, deep sea sea seafloor mining which is a very challenging environment and we could send down a robot colony that would uh, Adapt to that environment, and then develop the ability to, to you know, to dig up some gold, uh, send it uh, up for us. Or my favorite is really uh, environmental monitoring in remote areas of the globe. For instance, we have these huge jungles, the rainforests, uh, which. Uh, was the name De- okay?
0: Deforestation? Defor- yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have these huge jungles and rainforests uh, that are deteriorating in a um, in a very uh, how do you call it in a very depth. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have these huge jungles or rainforests that are deteriorating at a very terrifying pace, mm-hmm. and we don't know enough about that process. So. Uh, we will need robots that monitor that environment and then gather data, maybe gather samples, vegetation samples or soil samples and bring it up for us for further study. And environmental monitoring means that we need robots in the jungle. And that exactly uh, explains why we need evolutionary robotics and why classic robotic design approaches are probably not appropriate because it is extremely hard to design an optimal morphology, an optimal body plan for a robot in the jungle. You just don't know what an optimal robot looks like. Should it be uh, big to tramp down all obstacles and go everywhere whatever is there? Or should it be small and agile and sneak through all the vegetation? Should it be like a snake or should it be able to climb battery? Uh, should it have wheels or should it have legs or wheels and legs? Uh, should it have one head with one eye or two heads with two eyes? Everything is possible. Mm-hmm. The opportunities are all there. But classic, for classic engineering, this is too hard of a task. If you look around what kind of robots exist on Earth that really exist and are being used, they are all in very structured environments that typically do not change much. Like in a factory, they are welding cars or painting cars or even in a parcel uh, company, they are you know composing packages uh, to be sent. Uh, even the self-driving cars, which are not here yet, uh, they are not completely self-driving, a highway is, is a quite well-structured environment mm-hmm. with very clear rules what kind of objects you can encounter and what they are typically doing. A jungle or another planet or the seafloor is completely different, so very unstructured, very dynamic, unpredictable, you cannot build a model, so you cannot optimize. And in these circumstances, evolution is your friend, because as we know, it populated the whole Earth. So, evolution can design good bodies and good brains for challenging environments like uh, the rainforest.
0: And these ideas, are they just ideas or they are now. Uh, or are you going to talk about it? <laughs>
1: okay. Yes. Um, so, as I said, after the proof of concept, mm-hmm. we had a very compelling argument uh, that we can do that. And indeed, um, in 2017. A group of English scientists and myself wrote a project proposal for the British National Science Foundation and then we won that grant so we won 2 million euros partly because of the appealing application and from 2018 so for two years by now we are working on an evolutionary robot system that is to solve the problem of the The decommissioning of old nuclear power plants. Oh. Sorry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as it happens, the UK was very early with nuclear technology, so they have a lot of old nuclear power plants, and some of these power plants uh, are not functioning anymore. But you know, the the drawings are gone. The people who built them are dead. So we actually just don't know what's inside we don't know how to decommission how to clean them how to safely you know uh, get rid of them and that means that we have to do it with robots and this is typically an environment which is very challenging we don't know what's inside is it water is it dust is it both uh, what kind of obstacles are there uh, what are the temperature and the lighting, light conditions so this was the application that kind of sold our proposal and this is the application that we are working on at the moment.
0: Okay, wow. And um, did you already, when you start this, uh, your project, like the whole Rubble Baby project, did you already have these ideas in mind?
1: Yes, all concepts were already there. So uh, exactly because I didn't get those grants uh, early uh, in the 2010s, I had a lot of time to think about the concepts, so the theory forming, the concept forming, Mm -hmm. analysis of the requirements uh, and the targets, the scientific and the technological targets, was very well elaborated. So indeed, in 2017, we, uh, not only me, but my colleagues from the UK, we knew exactly what we had to do and we quite well knew also how we had to do that. We just needed the money and the resources to start doing it. As for me personally, I I completely underestimated the role of engineering. So this was a very nice um, feature of this consortium that uh, consists of four universities from York where I also have a visiting professorship uh, Bristol and Edinburgh and Amsterdam, the Frey University at Amsterdam, mm-hmm. okay, so two of these partners, Bristol and New York, are very strong in engineering, so they knew how to do this, I already knew like, yes, we have to do some robot body design, and we have to do some 3D printing, and we need some components like the cameras and the CPUs, and we have a ro- need a robot arm to put them all together, And they knew and know how to realize that. So that was something which I hugely underestimated. And this is a a great synergy and also a great pleasure for everybody because we really complement each other and we make really great progress. And as for me, I'm learning a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe that's actually interesting. Like what disciplines uh, are all involved in this? Artificial intelligence, engineering, you mentioned. Are there more uh, disciplines involved in this research?
1: Yeah, biology to some extent Mm -hmm. indeed, so uh, the Freie Universität is not eligible for direct research funding from the UK, but um, the the university uh, generously co-founded this project as a PhD student, and uh, in that sub-project I have the honor to collaborate with an evolutionary biology professor and a philosophy professor.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So
1: the VU part, the VU part is really multidisciplinary Mm -hmm. and the British part of it is indeed artificial intelligence is represented. You could say that evolutionary computing is a part of AI, but I would say let's consider it as a separate discipline. And engineering, of course, mechanical engineering and electrical engineering, which are really hugely important.
0: And what would you say, do biologists and philosophers learn from evolutionary robotics?
1: Um, To my great surprise and joy and delight, they were completely enthusiastic about the idea. Um, For the biological professor, it means, and all biologists actually, evolutionary robot systems offer a new research instrument. It enables them to investigate research questions, experimentally, uh, about evolution. And robot evolution, you may say it is not real, but it is much more real than computer simulations, anyway. And um, you can investigate questions about evolution, which is much harder to investigate with, with living organisms, because robots are easier to program, easier to control, and easier to observe. And you can repeat the same experiment under the same conditions 100 times and have some decent statistics, while a biological experiment neurotypically is not conducted 100 times. Uh, So, for the biologist, this is a completely new research instrument to do completely new experimental studies uh, into old questions, or probably also into new questions. So, for instance, with this technology, we together can experimentally investigate the evolutionary interaction of the body and the brain. We can design arbitrary combinations of bodies and brains and then have it over and see what happens. We can somehow limit the capabilities of the body and then see whether the brains can compensate for that or other way around. We could have, you know, very stupid robots and then uh, figure out, see experimentally, if a good body can compensate for that. As for the philosopher, uh, the interesting thing is really a couple of interesting things. Uh, For instance, is this life? Are we crossing the border? As we discussed it before, uh, evolution started at the same moment when we, we cross the border between living and non-living matter. And you could say, if we do this evolutionary process in, in a physical world, then we create artificial life. And if it is artificial life, does it have consequences, ethical consequences? Should we limit ourselves in how to handle these robots? Like, yes, there are people who... Uh, who come up for the rights of the animals. You know, in the Netherlands, there is a party for animals. <laughs> and and it's an interesting question whether we should give the robots the same kind of rights or putting it popularly, can we just pull the plug?
0: Are these things that uh, you yourself think about? Like, are oh, you, yes, uh, definitely. Yeah? Uh, what is your opinion? Do you see it as life? Um,
1: or? No, no. Uh, The kind of robots that we are working with at this moment and the kind of robots that are feasible in the coming decades don't cross that border of life to me. They are machines and pretty much like you can be angry with your car that breaks down and you know kick the door you can kick one of these robots, uh, pretty much like you can switch off your computer or, or throw it away if it irritates you. Uh, you could do the same with these robots. But I'm open for the arguments that you know that argue differently.
2: Mm-hmm. That,
1: that say, no, maybe, maybe they are more lifelike than we think. Or, more interestingly, uh, that life may be not uh, black and white matter. Maybe there is a spectrum, so maybe it is like, you know, the Fifty Shades of Grey when when you go from definitely dead matter to definitely living matter and in between there may be stages or, yeah, and so this is the kind of philosophical discussions which we seriously discuss and try to publish about. Mm In the meanwhile, and that is uh, a particular area of interest of this of this colleague, professor of philosophy and ethics on uh, the university, is uh, how to do it safely, how how to do this without endangering the Homo sapiens as a species. So how to make mm-hmm. sure that we don't start a process that we can't stop, that we cannot control.
0: Yes, and. Um yeah, for you, um, what is your main motivation for doing all this? Is your, are you primar- primarily interested in the science behind it or are you primarily interested in developing these applications?
1: I am much more a scientist than an application-oriented <laughs> person, let alone an engineer. So I am very much interested in the science of it. But to some extent, it is, it is curiosity. Mm -hmm. It is a genuine, deep curiosity uh, and the question, can we really do that? Is this possible? And exactly because it seemed impossible for such a long time, I am very motivated to make it happen and so it is possible and open up new avenues for research and engineering and even entertainment. So one of the answers uh, of one of the answers for the question what can we do with this Uh, we can do new kind of science uh, uh, as I said biologists can use it as a research instrument to answer biological questions but also in AI we could do fundamental theoretical investigations into the uh, emergence of intelligence or the question does intelligence really need a body Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so that's the scientific relevance of the image. Then we have the engineering relevance. Uh, as we discussed earlier, classic engineering uh, falls short if the environment and the circumstances are complex and dynamic and um, unpredictable and not known fully. So uh, we, can, we can have a, an improved kind of engineering and we can produce robots that we couldn't produce otherwise. So there's the engineering benefit. And as I said, it also has uh, a popular benefit for outreach. Uh, my favorite example is uh, the Jurassic Park. <laughs> so we could make robotic park. And we know that Jurassic Park didn't go well, okay, I, I admit <laughs> that. But uh, robotic park could go much better because robots are indeed more controllable, more observable, and we don't have the distributed reproduction system. So we could always shut down evolution. And maybe Shutting Down Evolution will not kill all robots instantly, but at least we only have to catch them one by one uh, because there will be no more of them. So fantasizing about this gives me the idea of building robotic parks and then uh, charging entry fees and then putting the money back to research. Mm
0: -hmm. But ultimately all for the research. <laughs> That's the That's main goal, yeah.
1: My main personal motivation is doing research, doing yeah. science and uh, and see if you can do that to make the impossible happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Probably without that motivation you couldn't get here. Like with any other uh, apl- apl- applicable or uh, money-wise motivation. No, you no, definitely need more not. time and the energy for that. Yeah. I'm wondering also, um, how did this... Did this change your view on human intelligence? The fact that we can create artificial intelligence in this way?
1: I realize now more and more how unlikely it is that human intelligence evolved. Of course, it took billions of years, eh? so uh, that makes it possible as it is uh, possible. My opinion about human intelligence did not change much, really. And if anything, this kind of research uh, gives you insights about animal intelligence. And it made me realize that uh, artificial intelligence, as it started in the 20th century, was upside down somehow. Because the first research targets, the first iconic challenges that AI wanted to solve Uh, were mimicking the highest brain functions, like playing chess. And there were decades of AI when we had thinking machines that were able to play chess, but we couldn't reproduce in an artificial system the most elementary uh, visual system of a a rat. So, this is what I mean by it started upside down. It started with the highest brain functions, and analyzed and reproduced those highest brain functions in artificial systems, in software, whereas it completely ignored the, uh, the embodiment of, of intelligence. So there are very strong arguments for saying that intelligence needs a body. There is no intelligence without body. At least there is no intelligence that is tangible that we can really study and, and observe all observable forms of intelligence whether it is a low level of intelligence or a high level of intelligence animal or human intelligence they all have a body and um, the classic AI was focusing on the brains only it was a digital AI and this what I am doing here is uh, in another stream which I call embodied AI so digital AI is here to stay mm-hmm. this is what works uh, in in your uh, personal assistance on your phone, Uh, this is uh, behind the recommender systems, this is what is applied by uh, uh, medical experts uh, to diagnose uh, x-ray pictures and and a lot of applications everywhere. AI is everywhere by now and it is all digital AI. The follow-up of the original 20th century dream of building thinking machines.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and but so would you say that to, um, it seems that the goal of artificial intelligence is to make artificial, well, whatever machines, but to actually achieve that we need the embodied AI, so a robot, so to say, or anything else, just a physical thing.
1: Yes, that is the the other stream, mm-hmm. uh, which is coming up in the 21st century, because the technology just was just not there before. Mm-hmm. But now... With the advance of automation and uh, robotics, um, we are already getting there that embodied AI is more and more prominent and more and more feasible. But uh, embodied AI is lagging like 30 to 40 years behind uh, digital AI, Mm -hmm. which makes it uh, an exciting stage of, of, of development, of course. It is just starting, so... We are discovering the big questions. Uh, we are setting uh, targets uh, and then trying to identify things that we can do and we cannot do.
0: Yeah, but ultimately, it seems when you want to mimic or um, a human and its intelligence, this is what we need, like the embodied AI. So yes. Yeah. Yes, yep.
1: indeed. So. Um, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, there are digital digital persons. Okay, all these all these digital assistants, Siri or whatever you have, uh, Alexa. Uh, they are they are digital. Uh, they can converse with the humans, or they understand what you say. They can search information for you. And in a few years, they could reach a level in which they are really valuable companions. Mm-hmm but they don't have a body, okay? They will be always inside that phone or, you know, speaking out of a small speaker or uh, out of your living room uh, ceiling. Uh, So to accept them and to really see and perceive them as our equals or at least close allies, they need to have a body. For emotional attachment and and real interaction, uh, you need a body. And that is down the road, uh, more than decades away from now when we can have evolved embodied intelligence whose body and brain are products of evolution and learning, and maybe also some hand engineering.
0: You say it's it's decades away? (laughs) It is decades away, yes.
1: So I know what we (laughs) can do now. And I know what I could do if somebody gave me, you know, uh, a, a fully-fledged lab and millions of euros. And even then, with all the resources and all the experts whom I could get to Amsterdam, of course, mm-hmm. uh, this would be decades away.
0: Yeah. Well, but still, I think it's it's exciting that it's actually starting and just ju- ju- it's just starting. And uh, it seems promising. I'm, I'm curious, like, uh, what's going to happen in the... Um, for example, the rainforest or uh, space explorations. Yeah. Yes,
1: so th- those will be the first examples. Yeah, uh, those will be the first examples. Animal-like robots mm-hmm. that operate in challenging environments where we cannot uh, cannot go or do not want to go. So they will be, uh, if I have to describe them, cat and dog size. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. the size of a cat and a dog, and maybe also shaped like a dog, so they will have limbs, maybe not four, but six. Uh, they may have two heads, uh, may also have a couple of wheels uh, around, uh, but they will be more close to an animal. Yeah. And the level of intelligence will be also uh, animal level of intelligence. Yeah. In 100 years from now, and that's of course an easy prediction because mm-hmm. well, nobody can verify really icons <laughs> <can't, No>. anyway, <laughs> we may have um, very advanced uh, robots, meaning very advanced bodies, and very advanced brains, that could be maybe not human level, but dolphin level. Mm-hmm. And I use, dolphins as analog- uh, I use dolphins often as an analogy because they are lovable. We see them as intelligent species. Eh? They share the earth with us, but we are not uh, hostile. They don't don't want our resources, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want their resources. Uh, They like us, we like them. So humans typically experience dolphins as some kind of uh, far relative down the evolutionary tree. Uh, Intelligent, nice, uh, but not really much like us. And when I try to form an emotional image of those Mm -hmm. robots that can evolve in 100 years, I always think of dolphins and never of terminators.
0: <laughs> well, I'm curious. I hope that in 100 years, someone will listen to the podcast and uh, <laughs> they can verify whether it's true or not. Well, thank you very much for the interview. Um, yeah, finally, what uh, what song would you like the the podcast to end the podcast with?
1: As I said, I'm concerned about controlling artificial evolutionary processes. Mm-hmm. And I said, therefore, I selected a song which is called Keep Control, played by Mm -hmm.
0: Well, That's a good message. Thank you.